Welcome to the editor's podcast for the June 22 edition of Practical Neurology. So uh, I'm uh, Phil Smith. I'm joined by Garrett Fuller, my co-editor. And uh, Garrett, we've been doing these podcasts now for getting on for 18 months. We did it really to help readers see the whole issue together and try to get some understanding of the uh, the entire issue. What's your feeling about the podcast? How, how do you feel that uh, it helps your learning, for example? Well, it, I think it's always quite interesting to revisit papers that obviously we've become very familiar with through the um, commissioning, the editing and uh, revision process and seeing them in their final form and then rereading them in advance of the podcast is very interesting. And often you get something slightly different out of them when you come to them again. And the fact that it's quite pleasurable to read them after all of that repetition, I think, is a testament to our author's activities. So, no, I find it very helpful. What about you, Phil? Well, yeah, I sometimes feel I'm reading them for the first time, even though I've been through them in minute detail, trying to uh, uh, improve sentences, make them clear as possible, you know, changing things like prior to the commencement of into before starting, that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, so then I read them really with view to trying to understand the the, the practical issues within the paper. And, uh, yeah, I I find it really rewarding, actually. And hopefully the... uh, uh, the, the readers and listeners will um, gain from them what, what we're gaining when we're rereading them as well. Yes, and, and obviously the podcast aims to provide a distillation of some of the key points, but hopefully also acts as a stimulus for our readers to turn into readers rather than just listeners. Indeed, we've got both. So we're going to start off, uh, Garant, with uh, you're, you're going to tell us a bit about advice and guidance, which I know is something dear to your heart. So we've got a uh, a paper from Newcastle upon Tyne, Kirsty Anderson and colleagues, but also we've got uh, an editorial from Victor Patterson uh, from Belfast uh, covering this issue. So advice and guidance, Garrett. So this is an interesting phenomenon, which is actually happening across the world. I mean, in the in the UK, it's referred to as advice and guidance, in America as e-consult. And the idea is that instead of having to wait to see a neurologist and go through the inevitable to stepwise process, what you're actually doing is ex- accessing the expertise of a neurologist uh, or a neurology team in advance of any kind of appointment or indeed maybe even to replace an appointment. So the idea is that the primary care physician, the GP in the UK, contacts the neurologist with a question, um, a, a clinical scenario, asking what to do what, what, or even uh, asking for a referral. And then the idea is that you then read the letter and you're able to respond, come to a decision about what kind of investigations will be needed, or indeed very frequently make a diagnosis on the story alone and then go on to provide advice regarding treatment and so on. So you short circuit the entire process. The patient gets access to the whole process without having the inevitable inevitable weights and so on. Now, there's no such thing as a new idea. And clearly, people have been doing this in one form or another for a long time. And I think what's interesting about this paper is that the team from Newcastle are telling us about their very considerable experience about running this using a system within the health service, which is called advice and guidance, the issues they found helpful, the issues they found problematic. And I think from that perspective, it's a really helpful introduction to to what I think lots of people are going to end up doing uh, simply because it provides better service for our patients and gives better access uh, more readily. Clearly, everyone's a little bit anxious about giving advice. You know, is it the same as the clinical consultation? Uh, you know, can it replace it? You know, can you be sure? And and I think we do have some data to to reassure us that that's helpful. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I note that it is an NHS England thing, and therefore I sort of speak really as an outsider. But of course, so does Victor Patterson, who is in Belfast, where the, the system is not embedded in their NHS necessarily. And clearly, it is a very, very good thing. I mean, maybe it has been catalyzed by the COVID pandemic, where there's been a big move to virtual consultations, and perhaps that has made the advice system even more attractive. But uh, uh, still working in Wales in the traditional model, I, I can really see how this could greatly benefit our patients, how uh, the access... I mean, for example, Newcastle, we're talking about uh, only 7% turned into an appointment and only half a day, really, on average, to get the advice back to the GP. So the patient is clearly greatly benefiting from this. So I'm a convert and would like to change our system. And, and the interesting thing, of course, is you mentioned Victor Patterson. I was looking at the, he's written a very nice editorial. And if you look at his references, he was publishing this in his first, one of his bigger papers in 2004. So Victor's been doing this for you know more than 20 years, and uh, he was able to share his experience. He, he also, I thought, provided a really nice thought experiment that uh, everyone should probably think about doing because if you don't believe it's possible just before you, you you're starting your clinic look at the letters you're uh, from your referral letters and write down what you would expect to do and see how often you get it right and i think the remarkable thing is actually how frequently you're able to anticipate it with a degree of some confidence uh, to allow you to do it so i think just doing that experiment enables you to see that it's possible and uh, as Phil says, gets the whole process short-circuited in a very dramatic kind of way. Yeah, so we don't often publish data in practical neurology, but this is one of the exceptions. And, and uh, the Newcastle data here, really interesting, I think. I mean, they, they, they talk about uh, 70% of the advice questions were on management or investigations and only 11% on diagnosis. And you know, we, we think neurologists are all about diagnosis, don't we? And that, that, but actually GPs are less interested in that. And only 7% turned into an appointment, which is a face-to-face -face appointment. So uh, it can deflect a lot of work. But the total number of appointments didn't change as it happened. But it's the quality of the uh, interaction with the patient in the primary care that changed. Yeah. And, and I think the other things to recognise is that this is going to be very much dependent on the services that are available and what you offer and who does what. And so you know, there's no simple way to do this because whatever services you have, you need to, to interact with and, and provide advice for our GP. So hopefully it's going to help be, be thought-provoking and help enable our colleagues to do something which I think is going to be beneficial for our patients in the future. So moving on to our next case, we've got a very interesting paper because obviously optic neuritis is something which predominantly comes to uh, ophthalmologists in the first instance, but obviously neurologists are involved and it poses some quite challenging decisions about what to do about it. So Phil, uh, I think you've got a paper to discuss on optic neuritis. Yeah, so this is from Sarah Cooper and it's headed up by Gordon Plant. So we, we know it's the real deal. It's the, uh, it's the definitive paper really with his name as the lead author. This is optic neuritis with potential for poor outcome. And it's, it's founded upon the optic neuritis treatment trial of 1992, which had this 
uh, we remember somewhat surprising result at the time that uh, steroids accelerate recovery in optic neuritis but don't seem to affect the long-term prognosis. And therefore, it's led to a change in practice where really you, you only give steroids if it's very bad and it's perhaps worth holding off for avoiding the side effects of steroids. But of course, this is for typical optic neuritis, so-called MS-associated idiopathic demyelinating optic neuritis. And, uh, and the majority, the large majority of people in that trial had exactly that. But there are two conditions in particular where optic neuritis has a particularly poor outcome and that urgent treatment with steroids, even plasma exchange, is needed to prevent that terrible prognosis. And these are aquaporin-4, optic neuritis, and uh, MOG, myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein, optic neuritis, and, and a couple of others, uh, maybe as well, parinfectious and uh, creon and so forth. So we need to scrutinize very carefully the clinical features, the presenting features of the optic neuritis to be sure that we pick up those that have the worst prognosis and target the treatment accordingly. So in this paper, some very helpful tables setting out the differences between the normal, in inverted commas, MS-associated and the aquaporin-4 and MOG ones. Just to take a few highlights, the aquaporin-4 tends to be older, tends to be people of Asian and African descent, strongly female preponderant, less painful, chiasmitis therefore presents bilaterally, but also may have a, a cord lesion, and less often having uh, oligoclonal bands positive, and, and they may get uh, brainstem problems, including area pastrema and so forth. Whereas MOG, younger people, Southeast Asian and Indian, bilateral in 30 or 40% again, often have discodema, often have papillitis, indicating it's uh, anterior in the optic nerve and very few periventricular uh, lesions. And again, very few have oligoclonal bands. So, you know, we need to look out for these. We need to uh, be sure that we target the, the treatment as soon as it's recognised and uh, early aggressive treatment is the way forward for these. It's quite interesting because it makes you realise that the, the, the decision you're faced with when you see someone with optic neuritis is not, is this optic neuritis? But is this optic neuritis with poor prognostic features? And the big difficulty is the antibodies, a lot of the other stuff, take time to come back. So you're in this period where you have to make a decision on imperfect uh, data. And obviously you've got the clinical things that you've highlighted there. But also, who do you urgently scan? Who do you uh, urgently scan the whole spine to try and see if you can pick up any other markers of MOG, aquaporin 4 and so on that would benefit from early aggressive treatment? So I think it's interesting because it means you have to think about the decision process just slightly differently at that point. So I think it was a very helpful paper, albeit yeah. one without a clean answer, which I think is probably the difficulty at the moment. Yeah, I mean, something I, I wanted to highlight and I, I got from this was the importance of ethnicity, which actually I, I feel the authors might have been a bit coy about and could perhaps have spelt out more. But clearly it's a, it's a sensitive area, it's a protected characteristic, etc. But it is mentioned in the tables, but doesn't come out in the abstracts or the key points or the cases. And, uh, and yet, uh, you know, I, I feel that this is 
one way of directing the the diagnosis. But um, no, I'm I'm not an expert in optic neuritis. But I, I just that's one clinical point I took from it that uh, ethnicity in this condition I think is quite important in in helping to uh, decide the prognosis and hence the urgency of medication. Yeah. Which brings us on to the next series of cases, and it's actually not a single paper that we're going to talk about now, but really three papers, um, a triptych, perhaps. I mean, obviously, we're all very familiar with the uh, notion of cerebral amyloid angiopathy, the idea that you can have a degenerative condition where you have amyloid in the blood vessels producing vessel fragility, propensity to strokes, these unusual phenomena called amyloid spells and so on. But it's not the only amyloid angiopathy. And uh, we had two cases that were independently submitted, a case that was published by Mamouna Nazir, amyloid-related angiitis, uh, a treatable course of, of rapidly progressive dementia, and a, a second paper, which was cerebral amyloid angiopathy with related inflammation masquerading as crescendo transient ischemic attacks from Duncan Maddox uh, and colleagues from Queensland. And this pair of papers really showed us two different inflammatory amyloid-associated disorders. And and it's quite interesting to think about them because in the uh, cerebral amyloid-associated inflammation, you get some inflammation around the amyloid vessel, amyloid-infiltrated vessel, but it isn't actually a vasculitis. And in contrast, in the amyloid beta-related angiitis, you actually get an inflammatory process within the vessel wall, like a a vasculitis, like primary CNS vasculitis, but with amyloid. So you've got this sort of spectrum. And um, we thought it would be very useful to take the opportunity with these conditions to ask Neil Scolding to write an editorial to cover these. I think the really crucial thing about these conditions is that they present often in a slightly tricky way. There's often a stepwise deterioration reflecting the uh, ischemic approaches. The scan change is often quite subtle relative to the the size of the problems that patients often running into in that you'll get an, an accumulation of vessels, small hemorrhages. You need to ask for the right sequences to see these things. But ultimately, the diagnosis of both of these uh, conditions hinges on getting a biopsy to find out which sort of inflammation that you have. And uh, in both of these cases, there was a a progression, there was an uncertainty, and then uh, in both cases, they have a a brain biopsy, and the brain biopsy leads to a diagnosis, and then you are able to give immunosuppressive treatment, and whilst there's no strong evidence base to say one version of immunosuppression is better than another, broadly speaking, it's steroids plus cyclophosphamide for the angiitis or um, perhaps azathioprine or one of the slightly less toxic uh, steroid-sparing agents for the amyloid-associated inflammation. But in both situations, you have the opportunity for substantial improvement, as is described in these two patients who have otherwise very progressive and uh, really nasty disorders. So so I think it's a really interesting issue because you, you, the, the crutch of the decision here seems to be making, realising that it's in the differential and that you need the brain biopsy to make the diagnosis, and then you have the opportunity for substantial treatment. So I think this is a very interesting and, albeit not fully worked out, set of conditions. Yeah, and uh, we've actually put a biopsy from the second paper on the cover of the practical neurology. After all of our time looking at uh, images, etc., we've um, moved back to histopathology. So it's such as the importance of this and uh, illustrating how brain biopsy is the the way forward for uh, diagnosing these inflammatory cerebral angioid angiopathies, then uh, that is an illustration of it. But I I think the, the joy of these 
of this series of three papers is really Neil Scolding's uh, editorial. I mean, he's got a, a very sort of scholarly, inimitable style, which comes... You, you can almost hear him talking. It's a bit like when you hear Alan Bennett talking about Winnie the Pooh. You just, yeah, every time you, you read it, it's uh, it's the same voice coming through. You can hear Neil talking this uh, this through and uh, he's joined them together beautifully I think and yeah so we, we uh, will be needing to diagnose more of this it's a really important condition get it wrong and and give uh, uh, blood thinners etc then we end up with a problem so no, I think that it's a very very important issue we're going to be diagnosing much more of this I think what one feature actually what just whilst you're on Gary what what do you understand amyloid spells are uh, i remember when i randomized my first patient to the carotid artery study back in the 1990s he was describing 15 seconds of tingling in one arm and in the face and i, and I said mm, it's, a, it's a tia probably and he was randomized to something to do you know to have his carotid or or not um i think in retrospect it was an amyloid spell could i just ask you what 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 you think amyloid spells are well, phenomenologically, I think we've got a very clear notion as to what they are, that you've got these brief um, things halfway between a migraine and a seizure where you have a brief positive period of normally sensory or uh, other phenomena. But what are they? I mean, to me, they seem to be some sort of cortical irritation with a bit of spreading depression type phenomenon. But uh, I don't really know what the pathophysiology is. Phil, over to you. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just read in the paper that uh, they were either focal seizures from irritation from intracellular hemorrhage, or vasospastic, or cortical spreading depression. So I don't. I think the jury is out actually. But I was just just uh, wondering if you had a had a feel for them. No, I have no burning desire. Right. Uh, so we we then move on to amnesia, which obviously is quite a dramatic thing. And in fact, a lot of the time, if you get a referral about someone who's had transient global amnesia, you can almost recognise it from the advice and guidance, so from the referral, so you can give advice and guidance regarding it. Um, but we've got a really nice review on all of this. Uh, over to you, Phil. Yeah, so this is acute onset amnesia, transient global amnesia and other causes. It's from Tom Miller and uh, Chris Butler in Queen Square in London. And uh, really, yes, this is the definitive paper. If you want to find out more about uh, acute am onset amnesia, this is it. So they take us through issues to do with what is memory again. And to be honest, each time I read something about memory, the terminology seems to have changed. But uh, anyway, declarative memory is either episodic or working memory or semantic memory. And the thing that uh, goes wrong in particular in these conditions is episodic memory, and it relates particularly to the CA1 area of the hippocampus. So I was struck in this paper, it's mainly about transient global amnesia actually, but uh, I, I was struck in this paper that um, there are certain precipitating events that we ought to be looking for in this condition, physical exertion, emotional and psychological factors, but also sudden changes in temperature, cold immersion, for example, and pain and sexual intercourse. But it seems that men is more likely physical exertion, women is more likely emotional stressors. And uh, perhaps this is something to do with also uh, the exertion, perhaps something to do with uh, venous drainage. 
The other thing I picked up from it was that the MR scan is useful, but only in retrospect, because uh, during the ictus, the MR scan is normal, but uh, uh, within 12 to 48 hours of the start, uh, there are some little punctate changes in the CA1 region of the hippocampus on very, very thin slices. I uh, was also struck by the fact that uh, Uh, migraine is twice as likely in those who get recurrent episodes. It's quite a rare thing to have recurrent episodes, actually. Um, Only about 5% do. Uh, And, of course, that people with TGA can seem to carry on their normal activity, including complex procedural tasks like driving. And we even hear that maybe, you know, a surgeon doing an operation could carry on doing that sort of thing. And hence, because of that, the restriction on driving, there isn't one, uh, if it's just one episode, because people would be safe, it seems, to even if they were to have a second episode of TGA to, to be driving. The problem is that the differential diagnosis is transient epileptic amnesia, which uh, is different, is shorter, attacks happen frequently, sometimes typically on waking, and um, they actually last for much longer than you'd expect a seizure to last. I mean, in a way, it's like the brain is numbed, uh, like a sort of Todd's paresis of the hippocampus for for three or four hours afterwards. I found the table, too, in the paper very helpful to make those distinctions. The authors also go on to talk about psychogenic causes as well. So they've gone through the gamut of different causes of transient amnesia, but it's focused mainly on transient global and uh, a bit of transient epileptic amnesia and really, really useful paper, I think. And I think, actually, again, it's coming back to the kind of decision. When you see someone with what you think is transient global amnesia, for the most part, that's what it's going to be. And you really have to then decide, is it one of the mimics? Are there atypical features that are sufficient for me to make, to think about something different, uh, to initiate different types of investigations? Uh, and obviously, with the implications in relation to driving and all the others, if you come up with a different conclusion. Yeah, and the majority will come to a neurologist, I suppose. It's it's one of those conditions where whoever sees them first will think, well, this is pure, this needs sorting out by a neurologist. So I think we're going to see the majority of these cases. And uh, it does appear that uh, there is no increased risk of stroke, for example, even though many will be initially triaged as, uh, as stroke and uh, perhaps have their stroke risk factors examined in detail and so forth. It doesn't seem to relate to that at all. So have you found that there's been a huge increase in the South Wales area now that uh, cold water swimming is so popular? Actually, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, uh, I've personally not seen that, and nor have I been doing cold water swimming, though members of my family do do that and uh, seem to enjoy it. I I think actually the immersion itself is horrible, but uh, afterwards they feel great for a few hours, I believe. And then sometimes they don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, our our next paper then is um, the Gold Coast criteria for uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And Garrett, you've been uh, looking at this paper in some detail. So this is a very nice paper from Martin Turner and the UK MND Clinical Studies Group, um, diagnosing ALS, the Gold Coast criteria, and the role of EMG. And broadly speaking, it takes as its starting point the ALS scorial criteria, which were uh, and have been the basic diagnostic criteria for research in MND. One of the problems with that uh, group of criteria is that they haven't, as it turns out, really mirrored um, the biology of the disease. So patients don't go through from possible to probable to definite. That Some people can remain possible 
through the duration of their illness from which they die, simply because they don't actually conform to the criteria. And clearly this has caused quite a lot of problems. I mean, it obviously means that some people who would potentially be amenable or candidates for trials aren't in those trials. And you're also left with a very unsatisfactory situation where someone is dying of a terrible condition, which is only possible on the basis of the criteria, which seems very unsatisfactory. And broadly speaking, what the Gold Coast criteria have done, and, and this sort of harks back to a pre-COVID uh, era where people actually went to somewhere and met up and they decided on the criteria, they've really come back to very sort of straightforward clinical criteria. So they've actually downgraded the need for EMG. Uh, they're using EMG as an extension of clinical activity, of clinical examination. So if you can see lower motor neuron signs clinically, you don't need to have them confirmed neurophysiologically. I mean, obviously, most people will be doing that, but it, you can make the diagnosis on the basis of a clinical evidence of denovation. And the criteria are actually remarkable for their simplicity. You know, broadly, you need to have a progressive uh, impairment documented either from history or repeated clinical assessment preceded by normal motor activity. And then a combination of upper and lower motor neuron dysfunction in at least one body region. And it goes on to, to um, uh, define what those things are. Or if you don't have upper motor neuron signs, you have to have progressive lower motor neuron signs in at least two body regions. And the body regions refer to are the same as used in Ellis Coriel, um, you know, cervical, thoracic, uh, lower limb, cranial nerves, and so on. So I, I think this is a very welcome advance. And I think in the clinic is going to be helpful because you're, you're not going to have this very awkward thing when the EMG report comes back in a patient who you've seen uh, who clinically has definite motor neuron disease and they say it's only possible or probable. And uh, I think this is going to be something people find helpful and hopefully is going to lead to more useful clinical studies in time. Yeah, as you say, it's a confusing and distressing thing for a patient to be told that they have possible motor neuron disease and they continue to progress and uh, you know that that is just adds to the problem really so simply through using historical diagnostic terms so i think this this is a welcome update yeah as you say it's uh, it's pre-pandemic very much so to all to go to the gold coast but it wouldn't be good i suppose to say it was the zoom criteria or the teams criteria but that, maybe that is a post-pandemic way of uh, getting groups together I think that the final point that is made is a good one, that uh, when you give the diagnosis of motor neuron disease, it must go hand in hand with the plan for care. And therefore, the diagnosis must be conveyed by the clinician who has knowledge of that plan and will implement that plan. It, it, it's uh, uh, a really important practical point. And I, I suppose mostly that is going to be the way it is, but it's, but it's definitely not something to delegate, but something that needs to go with the plan for care. Yeah, but, but and I think a step forward in, in simplifying that process. We, we then move on to a fairly dramatic condition, which actually is our editor's choice this time, the uh, uh, PRES, the Posterior Reversible Encephalopathy Syndrome, a syndrome that was named with a wonderful acronym, but turns out to have almost none of the features necessarily uh, in its acronym. But Phil, you've been reading all about this. Yeah, so this is from James Triplett and Todd Hardy and, and authors in... Uh, Perth, Australia. And uh, what a welcome paper this is. I mean, we uh, are often diagnosing PRES and uh, often uh, being called to see people who with this suspected diagnosis who are 
uh, maybe on general medical wards, renal wards, etc. So we clearly do need to know a lot about this condition. And uh, this, this paper really puts it all together very nicely indeed. Um, I remember the first time that I saw eclampsia on an MR scan and uh, what a dramatic change it was on this pregnant woman who then all these dramatic changes disappeared uh, a couple of weeks later. Uh, so eclampsia, the sort of exemplar of, uh, of prayers. Incidentally, eclampsia is Greek for lightning. So people with uh, eclampsia sort of see uh, lightning in, the, in their vision, and that's what it's named from. But uh, this, this uh, syndrome of uh, posterior reversible uh, encephalopathy syndrome, the white matter changes that uh, accompany all sorts of general medical conditions with the endothelial dysfunction leading to reversible vasogenic edema. And uh, it does seem that the posterior circulation has less sympathetic innovation to counteract this sort of reflex parasympathetic vasodilatation. And so that's why the posterior circulation in general is more effective. But as you say, it, it can affect the brainstem, can affect other regions as well. Um, it, it isn't always right for its acronym. Actually, is it an acronym, Geraint? Uh, acronyms apparently have to spell a whole word. So CANVAS, now there's a there's an acronym, but CADASIL SUNCT PRES. Are they acronyms? Um, they're not, and I can't remember what the correct term is for these. I think abbreviation, uh, I think. As, as a, as a, <laughs> but actually, they, they, they've become so well used, haven't they, that they've sort of become words. I mean, cadicil is a word, isn't it? And, uh, yes. and prez is a sort of word. So, so perhaps they've become acronyms uh, with, with use with time. But, uh, but I think actually often the naming of a syndrome is of relevance. Uh, I mean, clearly the, the, the one of the cardinal features, as you say, is the resolution after six to eight weeks or whatever. But this is not a condition which is without its risks. And the, the paper does make the point that in a significant number of patients, um, they will become sick enough to require to go to intensive care, depending on what else is going on, driving the whole process. So the fact that it's reversible shouldn't actually discourage the fact that you have to recognise how sick people in these circumstances can be and how very often they will need the support to make that work for them. Yeah, 19% mortality we're here, so uh, certainly... certainly That's, That really isn't reversible. That really yeah. isn't reversible. No, no. So a very, very important paper, really welcome, delighted to have this and uh, well, well worth us reading and um, we, no, I think to, uh, to be read by radiologists as well as clinicians. Yeah. And actually one of the great mimics, we were talking the other day about uh, uh, maybe a series on the, the mimics, this prez you know, is, is one of them. And, and I think actually it's one of those papers that you might, I think is quite likely to be referred to quite often because you see it frequently enough to be comfortable with it but also infrequently enough to want to to check where you are and make sure that you're covering all the bases appropriately. And, and I would hope that people will find that this paper useful and helpful in that circumstances. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the next one is is quite a specialist one, and you're going to tell us about this, guarantee. It's uh, intrathecal baclofen pumps, what the neurologist needs to know. This is from uh, Michelle Ballaratanam and uh, Val Stevenson from uh, London. So, Garrett. Baclofen pumps. So, I mean, this is interesting because obviously baclofen pumps are being used more frequently. They're, uh, broadly speaking, uh, set up to be able to deliver intrathecal baclofen to try and reduce the systemic side effects of baclofen and increase efficacy. And, and they argue in the paper that there's quite 
an opportunity to help perhaps more patients than we would normally think of with baclofen pumps, that they're less, I mean, you know, you don't have to be quite so severely affected still to gain benefit. But the background setting for all of this is really that quite frequently you will be admitting patients who have baclofen pumps. Inevitably, they have a comorbidity because they have whatever it is that gave, requires the baclofen pump, the MS or cord lesion or whatever it is. Um, and then obviously they'll come in and the question is, well, what do we do about it? Is the baclofen pump relevant? What do we do? Can we image? Can we do a lumbar puncture? And broadly speaking, they take you through all of these different things as to what, first of all, what could be related to the baclofen pump. And broadly speaking, it's either too much baclofen or too little baclofen. And if there's too much baclofen, everything goes very floppy. You go into respiratory arrest. Uh, you can do it, go into coma and so on. If it's uh, running out of baclofen, then in essence, you can um, get a sort of a spastic crisis with increased tone, hypertherm, uh, raised temperature and so on. So a whole range of different things. But obviously, on top of that, You've got somebody who's come in who's very sick, and what do you do? And you want to have an MRI scan. How do you do that? And there are an assortment of ways in which you need to try and manage that. There are some specific contraindications to doing, but equally a lot of the time it's a question of making sure you know how to program it, uh, which kind of pump it is, and so on. And they provided with a very useful framework as to how to approach that. CT and those sort of things are fine, so a lot of the time that's what's going to be used first up. But then you might want to do a lumbar puncture. You know, there's so obviously something within the spinal space uh, in, the, in, continuity, in continuity with the CSF, and a surprising number of patients do have infections. And can you do a lumbar puncture? Well, you can, but they recommend it's uh, X-ray guided because clearly you don't want to hit any or damage any of the tubing and so on in, in the fecal space. So it gives you some very straightforward and practical advice as to how to manage these patients with what's quite a uh, an increasingly common um a device which um, hope and the neurologists are likely to be the people asked to try and get some help with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see it. I mean, if, I think, um, see, nine to five, Monday to Friday, these will go to the specialist. It's really uh, out of hours and uh, weekends that they, the neurologist is going to need to know about these things in case uh, there is no other help. It's, it's perhaps the equivalent of autonomic dysreflexia where uh, the patient is safe uh, with their family and with their carers, with their uh, specialist until they come into an environment where they are seen by people who are not really familiar with uh, you know, uh, what autonomic dysreflexia is like and, and what a baclofen pump can do. And particularly perhaps in the COVID era where you're on your own as well and uh, you might be surrounded by people unfamiliar with it. So it, it, it is something we need to know about, but hopefully we keep at the back of our mind and most of the time we'll be able to ask the, the specialist who knows much more about it. I, I did pick up a couple of learning points from it. And uh, uh, so, for example, you mentioned it's too much or too little. Uh, you know, and they make the point that if there is apparent spasticity in the legs in someone who is in coma with respiratory depression, then it's unlikely to be too much. You know, it's going to be another cause like sepsis or metabolic derangement or something that's doing it. That, as you said, the MR scan is complicated and includes which way the pump is orientated in the scanner. That can make it dangerous and can make the pump malfunction, etc. And that, as you mentioned, the lumbar puncture, although it's delivered at T6 to T8, the tubing enters the intrathecal space in the lumbar spine. And so it is vulnerable uh, to a misplaced lumbar puncture, uh, damaging the tubing, introducing infection, etc. So I, 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 know, I think that this is an important paper. I, I hope I won't be using it that much, but I will know where to look when, uh, when the next uh, case arrives in, uh, out of hours. 
yeah. Well, you, you always know you have to look at practical neurology first, Phil, so that should be easy enough. That, that's an easy tip, isn't it? Yeah. So we, we were going to finish off with uh, discussing a, a paper which we would not normally discuss on the podcast because part the point of a test yourself is that actually you don't know the answer. But we thought that it, given that we published it last month, everyone would have read it. So we could very reasonably say, discuss some of the learning points that came from it. And, and you were particularly taken with this um, Test yourself. I, I, I was going. I was taken with it because it changed my practice. So it's uh, Tarig Abka and Mark Silver from Gloucester, and uh, they have a, a test yourself in the April issue called "Is it an inflammatory myelopathy?" And uh, essentially, it's a it's a sixty-five year old man um, who's got a myelopathy and also got a longitudinally uh, extensive myelopathy on the MR scan and active CSF, 19 cells and a gram of protein. And then he was given IV methylprednisolone and deteriorated. And it emerged later that he had a dural AV fistula uh, and that this initial scan had not shown the prominent vessels, all the sort of signature features, which is the case for up to half of cases of dural AV fistula. And that reactive CSF can also occur in this condition because of the high venous pressure and the transitive flow. And that when you give a bolus of IV corticosteroids, it can worsen the cord swelling. And so the patient can deteriorate it. So, so all of those three points actually came to light in a, in a case that I've since seen. And um, I felt it was too good a bit of learning not to throw light on it in, in the editor's podcast. And if people get to this stage of the podcast, well, they, they are the ones who are really going to, to learn. All the major learning comes at the end of the podcast. And they, they will undoubtedly have tested themselves and uh, picked up these very useful points. And, and I think the, the key thing is, if something surprising happens, take a step back and think again. And clearly, almost all spinal pathologies are likely to improve with steroids, even if they're yeah, not necessarily primarily inflammatory, but to deteriorate is a r- remarkably dramatic thing to happen uh, and I think provides a very strong diagnostic clue. So there we are. It's uh, it's another great issue. It's the, it's the June issue. So thank you very much indeed for listening to the Practical Neurology Editors podcast, a chat between the two editors. And we publish regular podcasts uh, with the author of the editor's choice paper in this case the the prez paper will be will be coming out soon um so please spread the word subscribe on your preferred platform uh and also we would always like to hear from you so please get in touch uh, through our social media channels uh, or leave us a review on the practical neurology podcast page on itunes so it's uh, goodbye from me till next time and uh, goodbye from me